0: May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Again, again, welcome to Christ the King. Uh, Handel, the composer of that last piece, by age 52, was fairly destitute. Um, His original love was opera, and he had had some modest success with opera. Uh, He had, I think it was called the beggar's opera, uh, had had some critical acclaim, but that modest success of that one piece was not enough to uh, counterbalance his many failed efforts. So by age 52, his company went bankrupt. It's likely he suffered a stroke and was afflicted with depression. It's not a very promising uh, start to what became uh, Handel's Messiah. And to make matters worse, not to jump ahead, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. Uh, to make matters even worse, his, uh, he had this crazy idea and his crazy idea was that he was going to set the story of salvation, the biblical story, to music. And this, at that time, was an idea that was just widely panned. Uh, he, he had some tentative efforts. I think he put the book of Esther to music. Why you chose that book, I'm not sure, but he did. Uh, and he, uh, he performed it, or it was performed, and critics panned it. They said, how can the word of God, one critic explained the word of God cannot be proclaimed by common mummers, by common mummers. That's a word for actors back in the day. So this idea that Handel had was just not getting anywhere fast. Yet he had a break in 1740. A a charity, a group of charities approached him, and uh, they asked him to compose, make a composition, for a benefit concert. And I just thought this was so amazing. The proceeds from the benefit concert would go to a free men trapped in debtor's prison. And so on August 21st, 1741, Handel began composing. And apparently he stayed in his room for 24 days straight, uh, and at the end of 24 days, he emerged with a 260-some-odd page composition that we know as Handel's Messiah. I think it's just amazing. I shared that story with some of you over email, so pardon the repetition, but I just think that is phenomenal. Just think of the overlap. The, uh, the, the musical piece, Messiah, uh, came from a very unlikely source, uh, Handel, destitute, depressed, ill, not a hope, reminds you of the very inauspicious beginning of the Lord. Handel's Messiah was written to free men trapped in prison. The Messiah came to free men and women trapped in prison. Aside from the hallelujah chorus, perhaps the most famous movement of his uh, composition is one we just heard, taken from Isaiah, the 41st chapter. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. Let's just think about the word, the glory of the Lord. It's, it's, if you've been around church or you've heard that phrase, what's it mean? It's all throughout the Bible, it's, sort of a, it's, it's a little bit nebulous in its definition. What is the glory of the Lord? Well, the glory of the Lord is the, uh, when the glory of the Lord is revealed, it's, it's uh, the inner characteristics, the unseen, the invisible attributes of God, which are made visible. All right, so we read that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. What does that mean? It's a, a verse from the Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. What that means is that when you look up to the stars or the sun, uh, you can discern that God is creative. He is great. He is awesome. He is something. And so the heavens are declaring something. They're revealing something about the invisible attributes of God, his characteristics that we could not, uh, otherwise uh, uh, not know. And Isaiah promises a time, and Handel put it to music, Isaiah promises a time when the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Now, certainly in Isaiah's time, uh, God's glory had been revealed partially and intermittently. But Isaiah seems to anticipate a time in which God's glory will be fully revealed and finally revealed. And Isaiah's The promise that Isaiah makes that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed is answered by John's gospel, the last lesson that we read. Uh, The glory of the Lord is revealed, claims John. This is the day that Isaiah was looking forward to. We have seen his glory, writes John. Verse 14, we have seen his glory. The glory of the only Son of the Father. The full verse, we'll spend some time reflecting on this one verse. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. There's two very important words that we find in that passage. The first is the word word. The word became flesh. The word which was God was with God uh, became in flesh. Think about the relationship of a word to a thought. My children are at the age where I'll have to ask them, so what are you thinking? Thoughts are no longer, words are no longer volunteered at least by some, so I'll have to pry a little bit. What are you thinking about? If they were unable to articulate, then their thoughts would remain a mystery. So a thought, uh, without a word, a thought remains a mystery. God, Jesus is to God as a word is to thought. He makes audible which is otherwise inaudible. He is like, he is the glory of a son to a father. Back in, in those ancient days and even to some degree now, uh, the, the, the goal of the son the, the, was to honor the father by being like the father. So a father brought joy, a son brought joy to the Father by emulating his character by revealing his, uh, his nature. And so the son, the Word Jesus Christ, is just described as the Word of God, which makes the inaudible God audible. He is described as the, the Son of God, which makes the invisible God visible. He is the manifestation, the full and the final revelation of God's glory. This is the big idea of Christmas. This is what it's all about. Everyone remember Charlie Brown's Christmas? Can anyone please tell me, asks Charlie Brown, what it's all about after poor Charlie Brown has his failed efforts with Christmas trees and all the hoopla that goes along with Christmas. And you all know the scene, sweet little Linus with his blankie stands up there and says, yes, Charlie Brown, I'll tell you. Well, Linus recites that very well-known passage out of the uh, Luke. Uh, in the days of Caesar Augustus, but Linus could have taken a shortcut and just recited this passage. I'll tell you what Christmas is all about. It's about this, that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And in doing so, he reveals the glory of God. He reveals the character of God, like the word expresses a thought, like a sun reflects the character of their father and so that is the really the audacious claim of Christmas that's the important thing that Christmas celebrates that's why we sing so many beautiful carols because what we believe is that God has fully and finally revealed himself to us in his goodness in his graciousness in his tenderness in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And like Handel's Messiah, the musical piece, uh, the Messiah, Jesus, uh, was just unlikely. He came from a very humble beginning, born in a manger, no room in the end. He was never around anyone or any place of power or significance. He died a criminal's death like Handel's composition, he died to set men free, yet the Christian faith is built on this foundational premise that this man, Jesus, was the, was, was the fulfillment of Isaiah's hopes. That he, in his life and his death, was a full revelation of the glory of God. And I just want to, I guess, remind us of that. It seems so, uh, such a low-hanging fruit, doesn't it? But uh, what is Christmas all about? What do you see when you drive by the nativity scenes? Something cute, something quaint. Well, what they saw, what John saw, was here, here is the glory of God revealed for you and me. So I, I want to encourage you to take a moment and do what they did. We beheld his glory. Jesus deserves more than just a passing glance from you. And remember what we celebrate: The wood became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So that's what the passage says, and I want to move to one other point for this morning. is What does the passage say? And that was our first Question, second question, what does it mean? So what? Why does it matter that we, they beheld his glory and by implication we can behold his glory as well? Well, this point is equally obvious. The point is that we, what are we to do? We are to glorify things that are glorious. C.S. Lewis wrote a famous essay. It's called The Weight of Glory. And he captures something of the, what is implied by the word glory. The word glory in its original means weight, It means significance. It's the opposite to dismiss something, to hold it as important. Drop a small pebble into a pond, and that pebble hardly makes a splash. But drop a, a weighty boulder, drop something of glory, of weight and it's going to make a splash, and it's going to send waves. So the point is we glorify Jesus by allowing him to make waves in our lives. We honor him as significant. One author stated the obvious when he said, We must be convinced that it is not the same thing to have known Jesus as to have not known him. Now, that requires a little bit of grammatical calculation, but it is not the same thing to have known Jesus as to not know Jesus. In other words, he makes an impact. It is not the same thing to behold his glory as to not behold his glory. And with our remaining time, I just want to suggest three ways in which Jesus can make an impact in your life. Three ways, which I think are affirmed by most Christians throughout most times. Maybe they're not all true for us all the times, but here are three waves that the boulder of Christ can make in your life. And the first is in the wave of what we feel. Your emotions, just as Jesus was in the boat with the disciples, recall the story. Of Jesus. Sleeping in the boat, disciples, scared, witless. Uh, Jesus offers a correction to them because Jesus was with them. And therefore, they need not be afraid. What's the point? We all will encounter our storms and our boats will be tossed. But you and I will not be capsized. We'll all encounter difficulties. We'll all encounter sadness. sadness, And none of us express joy in the same way. But I think regardless of any of our current circumstances, you and I have the possibility of knowing that you are infinitely, permanently, eternally loved. When Jesus is significant, when he is weighty, your problems will seem insignificant. When Jesus is insignificant, your problems will seem very significant. And I think that's one of the things that Jesus offers to all of us. That's one of the waves, one of the impacts of his, of his life on ours. That regardless of the ups and downs, there is a consistency a consistent confidence that you and I are infinitely loved. That's way number one. The second way is obedience, by what, not by only by what we feel, but by what we do. Jesus said that those who love me, those who, if I could insert the word glorify, those who glorify me, they listen to me. They obey what I say. On one occasion, Jesus was uh, speaking to his disciples and told his disciples, let's go over to that, some town endangered. And one of my favorite disciples, a fellow by the name of Thomas says, okay, I'll go with you, I'll go to die. Not the most enthusiastic of responses, but it's a faithful response. And there are many things that Jesus says for us to do and to be about, to care for the vulnerable, to make peace, if at all possible, to give generously of ourselves, to attend to him through his word, through worship and through prayer. And there's many times when most of us think, I think I'd rather not. And we may go about these things with all the enthusiasm of Thomas, but if Jesus is significant, if he is weighty then we'll listen to him. If he is small and he is insignificant, then I think we'll probably listen to anybody but him. Third and final, you and I glorify Jesus by allowing him to shape our desires. John wrote this gospel, the the words that we just heard, the word became flesh. And after the Jesus was risen, John was speaking about Jesus and he was arrested and brought to court and he was told that if you keep on speaking, you're gonna, it'll, it'll go poorly for you. And John said, look, you guys have to do what is right by you, but I cannot help but speak of what I've seen and what I've heard. In other words, I've got one thing I've got to do. My, my life has one purpose. And my purpose is to honor Christ. And that's true of the folks in this book. And I want it to be true of me, and I want it to be true of you too. That our chief desire is to, of those who saw his glory, was to honor his life with theirs. That doesn't mean we're without desires. That doesn't mean there's some things we want to avoid. But it does mean that we hold everything loosely so that we can hold on to the one thing that matters. We glorify him by allowing him the significance that he deserves. And I guess the question that I want us to ponder is this. Is Jesus making any waves in your life? He's not a pebble (laughs) that when dropped only makes a little ripple, only makes a superficial passing change to the surface of the pond of your life. He's not a pebble. He is a weighty boulder. He is glorious, significant, and he reorients our desires He calms our fears and he orders our action. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. I can think of no better description of the true meaning of Christmas than that short verse. The unseen character of God is fully and finally revealed by a son who mirrors his father by the word that articulates the thoughts of a speaker. And so what? We glorify things that are glorious. We treat Jesus as if he is significant. And so as we come to a close, let's just ponder that question. Is he making any waves in your life? I think it'd be good if we could hear that final piece we heard, Handel's Messiah. It's such a stirring piece. The choir will sing it for us and ponder the glory of the Lord. Help, ask, pray that God would show you his glory in the life of Jesus. Maybe you can contemplate the simple action that it's not the same thing to behold his glory as to not behold his glory and perhaps you can give him some of the significance that he deserves. The word became flesh, and they beheld his glory, and so can you and I.